Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, we're joined by Dr. Lance Itzumi. He is the director of the Pacific Research Institute's Center for Education. He is also the co-author of The Great Parent Revolt, How Parents and Grassroots Leaders Are Fighting Critical Race Theory in America's Schools. Lance, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much, Emily, for having me on your podcast. I'm a great admirer of The Federalist and uh, all the folks who work for The Federalist. So uh, it's a real honor to be on your podcast. Well, thank you. And there's so much to talk about with this subject. As you know, it's like there's new major news on it every single day, because uh, especially because as Republican leaders, Ron DeSantis and, and others take the issue head on in ways that they hadn't in the past. Before we dive into that, could you tell us a little bit about your background, how you ended up at the Pacific Research Institute and what led you to co-authoring this particular book? Well, thank you, Emily. Well, so, uh, you know, I, I always say I'm a recovering lawyer. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I went to law school at uh, USC. I eventually became uh, the speechwriter for U.S. Attorney General Ed Meese in President Reagan's administration. Uh, I came back to my home state here in California and became the chief speechwriter for the governor at that time, George Duke Majin. And uh, well, after all that, which were great experiences, I figured that, well, you know, it might be time to write for myself instead of for someone else. And so I decided to join first the Claremont Institute and then the Pacific Research Institute. And I've been here at Pacific Research Institute for, gosh, it's closing in on three decades, which is quite amazing. And uh, I've been head of their education unit for most of those years. And uh, I've been, you know, writing books, I've been writing studies, producing films, you know, and uh, you know, just a lot of different types of media uh, in order to promote uh, freedom in education, especially school choice, accountability, uh, you know, and transparency in uh, public education. And so, um, you know, that's why, you know, uh, part of the reason why I came to this book, The Great Parent Revolt, because we weren't seeing a lot of that uh, transparency in uh, public education, certainly as it uh, uh, relates to critical race theory. And so um, I, I had the privilege of uh, being able to co-author The Great Parent Revolt. Uh, the subtitle on that is How Parents and Grassroots Leaders Are Fighting Critical Race Theory in America's Schools with uh, my co-authors Wen Wan Wu and uh, Mackenzie Richards. And, uh, you know, it's had a really great uh, reception so far because I really do think it's the uh, right topic, uh, the right book at the right time. Mm. Well, the Great Revolt is a really strong way to put it. And I wanted to ask you sort of about the scale 
of the revolt. How, how great is the revolt here in Washington, D.C.? We have uh, not far from us Loudoun County, Fairfax County, which has been uh, major battlegrounds. They have both been major battlegrounds for some of these fights, but it's gone all over the entire country, especially since 2020. So when we think of the great, the great revolt, Lance, um, how great is this revolt? And, you know, what are we talking about things since 2020, since, you know, 2019? What's the kind of scale and scope of the revolt that you talk about in this book? Well, Emily, as you mentioned, uh, your area, you know, in Washington and Northern Virginia has really been ground zero for this great parent revolt. And, uh, you know, you've had the controversies surrounding um, Thomas Jefferson High School there, which has made national news. Uh, about how the um, uh, admission system there has been changed basically uh, to reduce the number of Asian Americans who are able to get into that school. But the underlying reason for this are issues involving critical race theory and that, the concept that they constantly use of equity, which is basically the same outcomes for all students, uh, as opposed to equality, where you have the opportunity for each student to reach his or her uh, potential based upon their individual talents. And so, um, you know, while uh, Northern Virginia might be ground zero, though, uh, one of the things we did in this book, The Great Parent Revolt, is we not only uh, profiled parents who, who are in uh, Northern Virginia. We've got a, a couple of parents who we profile, Azra Nomani, who is a well-known activist, parent activist in Northern Virginia at Thomas Jefferson High School. Was heavily involved in the lawsuit that uh, the coalition for Thomas Jefferson uh, brought against the school in order to uh, strike down their uh, basically what, what amounted to a racial quota system in their admission system. Uh, but while we profile uh, parents like that, we also profile parents all across the country because uh, getting to your point, uh, Emily, the, about the scale of this revolt, the scale of this revolt uh, is nationwide. And so if, if this were just a uh, phenomenon limited to the Washington metro area, you know, it would be interesting, but certainly not worth a book. But because uh, you see critical race theory infiltrating uh, classrooms all across America. And it doesn't matter whether it's blue states or red states, purple states, uh, it's all throughout the education system uh, across America. And uh, we, what we say in the book is that critical race theory is the most divisive doctrine really ever to threaten America's children and their schools. And so, uh, you know, we have uh, parents who we profile from uh, Rhode Island mom named Nicole Solas, who has uh, you know been very active up in Rhode Island using um, uh, public records requests to gain transparency for the curriculum that uh, the children up in her area are having to uh, use, you know, all the way to California, my home state, uh, where uh, you you have uh, several parents that we uh, profile here, including another parent named uh, Kelly Shankoski in Monterey County. You know, on the total opposite side of uh, Rhode Island, but she's doing the same thing that. Uh, uh, that Nicole is doing in Rhode Island, she's using Public Records Request Act to gain transparency for the types of curriculum that are being used in uh, the schools in her area. And in fact, she was successful in finding a particular document 
that uh, you know involve how the schools were going to be implementing a required ethnic stu- studies requirement here in California. Mm. And while the left always says that you know they're not pushing critical race theory in the public schools, she found that in this 500 plus were, uh, page document that critical race theory was mentioned not just once, not just twice, but 44 times in the way uh, this uh, ethnic studies requirement was supposed to be implemented in the local schools there. So uh, you know what we wanted to make sure to show people is that uh, there's a breadth and scale to uh, the problem that uh, we're facing here with critical race theory. Yeah, that's that's so important. And since you're from California, there's a really interesting question to be asked about the types of people involved in this revolt, because um, one of the things we noticed out in Loudoun County, or even with someone like Astra, um, is that it's really become a bipartisan issue. It's really become a bipartisan cause. And some of the people you talked to, I mean, I remember talking to one woman who, when we asked if she was conservative, said, did you just say conservative? I mean, I voted for Obama. Uh, But it's an issue that draws a lot of people together. Um, And in California, because it's a disproportionately sort of left of center population, I can only imagine that it has been kind of a wake up call for some people that aren't traditional conservative movements movement types, Republican voters. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've seen among uh, people who are, are part of this revolt in your own home state? Well, and, and I think that you pick up on a very important point that we wanted to stress in our book, uh, Emily, is that this revolt is not you know, uh, a narrow revolt of only certain types of parents. This isn't just uh, people from uh, you know, a certain racial demographic. This is not from a certain uh, economic demographic or religious demographic. This is actually a very widespread uh, and uh, you know very scaled revolt between uh, amongst many different types of people in America. In fact, you know when you think of America and uh, the you know how America has changed over the years, and you uh, see you know, all the different races, all the different religions, you know, people of different socioeconomic backgrounds, you know, that make up this country uh, as we see it today. Well, that's the people that we profile in our book. Uh, we have uh, African-Americans who, uh, you know, the first chapter that we um, uh, we have uh, profiling a particular person is Gabs Clark, uh, uh, low-income African-American mom, uh, widow, five kids, who was so poor, she was living in a motel in Las Vegas, but uh, you know, her son, who is mixed race, was having to uh, go through critical race theory um, uh, exercises in a required class in her uh, school, in her son's school. And uh, he didn't want to do that because, you know, because he's mixed race, but looks actually uh, has white features such as blonde hair and blue eyes, he would uh, end up uh, being picked upon because of the uh, you know, the, the way critical race theory separates people into oppressor and oppressed class based upon racial characteristics. And if you're white, you're viewed as being an oppressor class. And if you're non-white, you're being oppressed. And so uh, therefore, he didn't want to have to identify himself, you know, in front of his class. And so he refused to do this exercise. He was uh, uh, denied that he was failed for the class. And because it was a required uh, a course for graduation, he was denied a diploma. Gabs, who, despite the fact she's low income, African-American, you know, again, widow with five kids, you know, having to make decisions about whether to buy gas or food. She uh, ended up filing a federal lawsuit, you know, against the school because of the violations of the First Amendment free speech, 
14th Amendment equal protection and other federal uh, anti-discrimination statutes. So you have people like that who you think would be the last people who would be standing up against critical race theory who are fighting it. In California, you mentioned my state, you know, we profile uh, two women, uh, a, a woman named Elena Kaplan, who is a, a longtime Democrat. Uh, and uh, she has a, uh, a organizational partner named Leah Renson, uh, who is a longtime uh, Republican. Uh, and Leah's uh, uh, parents, uh, grandparents were Holocaust survivors. Uh, Elena's um, uh, background is she came from uh, Eastern Europe. She came from the Soviet Union. And so uh, they know, however, despite the fact they're Republican and Democrat, they know that, uh, you know, what it is to uh, be the victims of oppression, of governmental oppression, uh, an oppressive governmental system, which is really what uh, critical race theory uh, creates. And they put together an organization uh, that is fighting the uh, uh, way California has been implementing the ethnic studies requirement here in our state uh, that uh, was passed a couple of years ago. And so I think that what you're seeing is that you're seeing people from both ends of the political spectrum coming together, people from different races. You mentioned Azra Nomani in your area. Um, Azra uh, had been a lifelong Democrat. She had uh, she's uh, Indian extraction, uh, India, uh, and is an immigrant from India. And uh, her father had actually marched with Gandhi. Uh, for independence from British colonialism. And yet she is now being tarred, you know, as being uh, white adjacent and, uh, you know, all these other terrible names. But, uh, you know, she's a Muslim. She actually wrote a book on uh, her uh, trek to Mecca and uh, which ended up being, I believe, a best-selling book. And so you have all these different types of people who we have brought together to show that, you know, the, danger that of critical race theory to America is felt, especially by immigrants like Azra. And also uh, we, we profile a, a woman named G. Van Fleet, who you might know. Uh, in She's also from Northern Virginia, but she's from uh, an immigrant from communist China. And she had actually survived the terrible Maoist cultural revolution in China, which killed millions of people and uh, ordinary people in China, uh, simply because they belonged to the wrong class, because they had the wrong views, because they uh, had uh, a, a, a family lineage, lineage that uh, the communists didn't like. And so she could see how uh, this type of separation of people into different classes resulted in such horrible uh, consequences for the ordinary people of China. And she sees that same thing happening in America. And that's why she has stepped up to warn Americans that we cannot allow our country, which she came to because of the freedom and liberty we have uh, to descend into this communist chaos that she left. Mm. I wanted to ask actually kind of about that very question. What is it about critical race theory that so animates parents? I mean, you've been working in this space for decades, literally, and I don't think, I actually can't think, um, I, I don't have as much experience, but I can't think of a time in recent American history when parents have been this animated about uh, their children's educations. And what is it, do you think, Lance, about critical race theory, about this moment in uh, history, education? There's always COVID that comes into this as well that was very upsetting for so many parents. But just talking about critical race theory, what is it about CRT that so animates so many parents? Well, I think that the reason why it animates so many parents across the board is because 
it creates this personal persecution of uh, kids in the classroom. Now, you know, we know for years, you know, for those of us who have been involved in education reform, that uh, America's public schools have been doing a lousy job when it comes to uh, teaching our kids reading and writing in the basic subjects. Test scores for years have been, uh, you know, uh, below the below the floor. And, uh, um, and it's gotten even worse, you know, since COVID because of the school closures. But the thing about that is that even if your child uh, is doing poorly in school academically, that is different. Now, the school isn't doing their job. That's why they're in existence, is to give uh, that type of education to your child. The school isn't doing their job, but you're, I don't believe that you're feeling that your child is being persecuted for having a low uh, scores in reading or math, as bad as that is. Whereas I think that what you're seeing with critical race theory, and for you know your listeners who are you know may not know exactly what critical race theory is, critical race theory is really a racial version version of Marxism. Whereas under classical Marxism, you had people um, divided into oppressor and oppressed classes based upon economic status: the rich versus the poor, the bourgeoisie versus the proletariat. Under um, uh, critical race theory, you divide people based upon race instead. So you have um, uh, the oppressor class, which are usually whites, uh, but sometimes and oftentimes Asians as well, uh, as Ezra Nomani would have tell would tell you in, at Thomas Jefferson High School, and then all other non-whites are the oppressed class. And then what happens is that you end up with a uh, a persecution of certain individuals that uh, goes on in the classroom, and it creates this uh, whole um, environment of hostility between children. And I think that's what people are really upset about. And I'll give you an example. Uh, in addition to profiling parents in uh, our book, we also profile a student named Joshua because we wanted to get a really firsthand view of what exactly is going on in the classroom. So he, Joshua was telling him, this is his, um, uh, uh, not his real name. He asked us to uh, give him a false name so he could remain anonymous. But um, he was telling us that he took a leadership class here in California uh, in uh, in uh, in the mid in middle school, and in middle he thought that well he would be learning about community leadership, and instead what he found out was that uh, he was learning all kinds of critical race theory inspired. Uh, social justice issues instead, and they would have to do all these critical race theory inspired exercises as well. So, for example, he told us that uh, one of the exercises that he found particularly appalling was uh, the teacher would ask all the kids to line up uh, shoulder to shoulder in the classroom, and this they would engage in what was called a privilege walk. And so the teacher would stand at the front of the class and call out a trait of privilege, I am white, I am male, I am Christian. And the, if that trait applied to a student, that student would have to take a step forward. And uh, since um, Joshua was the only white male in the classroom, he had to take steps forward in front of his whole class and uh, you know, be singled out because of his race. And he said that you know, he felt like simply because he happened to be white and he happened to be male, that that was shameful and that these were traits that he couldn't control. He can't control, you know, what race he is. He can't control uh, what gender he is. And yet he was uh, singled out because of that and um, made to, uh, to be seen as a, some kind of symbol of negativity in that classroom. And so 
uh, you know, he, he says that those are the types of things that are happening. You know, he had to, uh, he said that they did a exercise involving art where you would have to draw a picture of somebody without their face, without looking at the paper. And, you know, uh, he did the exercise and the, the teacher asked him, well, what did he learn from the lesson? And he's, uh, the, he told the teacher, well, I learned that uh, you don't have to be perfect to do art. And the teacher's reply, which is just crazy and insane, uh, but certainly apropos for the critical race theory environment in which we live, the, the teacher's reply is that perfection, perfectionism is a sign of white supremacy. And that perfectionism, either or thinking, objectivity, you know, are all part of white supremacy culture. And uh, uh, Joshua asked the teacher, well, what is the evidence to back that up? And you know, good for him for having the courage to ask the teacher. And the teacher, this is interesting, had no real reply. She did not have any real evidence, which just goes to show that you know, she was trained and basically brainwashed by probably some professional development course or teacher training course, and was simply repeating uh, what she learned wherever she learned it, you know, back in class and forcing these kids to do something that she really had no uh, evidence that, uh, you know, there was any, you know, uh, support for it. And I think that's the type of thing that when parents see that happening, you know, and they saw this, especially during COVID where the lockdowns uh, caused uh, kids to do remote learning and they were able to look over their shoulder and see what was actually happening in the classroom, what the teachers were actually teaching. And I think that's, uh, when uh, uh, parents really, the light bulb really lit up over their heads and said that, hey, this is not right. And, uh, you know, my kids are being singled out for, uh, you know, for persecution. And uh, as I say, in a lot of cases, and, you know, these uh, kids are being taught to be divided, not to be united. Late last year in Dearborn, Michigan, there was a high profile case where a group of Muslim parents were protesting alongside evangelical Christians and other conservative groups, these wildly, wildly age inappropriate books that found their way into the public library there, the public school library there. And these are not isolated cases. This has happened all over the country, shockingly crude books. Um, and I wanted to ask, you know, we've talked about three things now, including uh, sexuality, critical race theory, and COVID. Um, how have each of these things, um, and maybe particularly sexuality and COVID, because we haven't touched as much on those so far, um, is this is they are they all part of the same revolt? Are they all combining as a force that is just infuriating parents? And if so, um, is is critical race theory the big one, and the other ones are sort of downstream of that? Like, what's the breakdown of of what is getting parents to, as you say, revolt around the country right now? Well, I think that uh, you know uh, the critical race theory element, I think, is probably the major thing because and. Um, you know, I can't say because, uh, you know, the gender issue, which is hugely important and is obviously happening in a lot of schools. I can't say, you know, exactly because we haven't done the research on that issue, you know, exactly how widespread we do know that uh, critical race theory is extremely widespread um, under different guises, uh, such as diversity, equity, and inclusion, 
social justice, anti-racism, education, uh, ethnic studies, all these different types of uh, terms are being used to uh, as a conduit for critical race theory inspired uh, teaching. Uh, I, I think that, you know, talking uh, anecdotally with uh, parents, you know, certainly the gender issue, you know, uh, the sexuality issue is, uh, you know, of huge concern to them as well. And I do think that what has happened is that uh, Critical race theory and the gender issue have really combined in the sense that uh, it's not just parents worrying about one or the other. I think they're worrying now about all of it. And, uh, and I think that this really goes to the issue of transparency, because I think what's happened is uh, that a lot of schools are trying to hide this from the parents. You certainly hear about uh, schools trying to hide the sexuality issue from parents. Uh, and certainly that has happened in the critical race theory issue as well. And uh, that's again why you know, we profile parents who are using different types of mechanisms in order to make uh, their schools more transparent, whether it's you know, Freedom of uh, Information Act, public records requests, those sorts of things. Uh, I think that uh, you are seeing parents who are saying that we need to basically rip the cover off of the schools to see what's going on in the classrooms. Um, in fact, um, it's interesting. I, I, I was uh, reading, uh, uh, I actually, I quoted a uh, parent in Washington, D.C., who I think actually had uh, written an article in The Federalist, um, you know, originally. Uh, her name is Julie, I believe. And uh, she had um, uh, said that, uh, you know, she got interested in critical race theory and what was going on in her daughter's schools because the principal uh, basically, uh, you know, uh, told her that it was going on, and but then didn't want to elaborate on it. And so I think that, uh, you know, that's what you're seeing is that, uh, you know, there's often uh, very halting uh, acknowledgement that the, the, the critical race theory is being taught in the classroom. But then that's why parents are, you know, are curious and they're trying to find out. And, you know, again, to bring up Azra Namani, one of the things Azra did was that in addition to fighting the admission system at Thomas Jefferson High School, uh, she also filed 200 uh, public records requests in order to find out what kind of diversity, equity, and inclusion contracts had been signed by local districts in her area, because that's you know how a lot of this uh, uh, CRT is being pushed into the classroom, because schools are going basically kind of through the side door by using these DEI uh, consultants to basically teach the teachers how to uh, you know uh, uh, to teach the kids. Uh, using CRT influence uh, teaching methods. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier that you worked for Attorney General Meese, someone who has long been very clear-eyed about the long march through the institutions, particularly starting with academia. And I, I wanted to ask, uh, based on that, what is it or why was it, I, I think, so difficult to t explain to parents 
Um, because people on the right were not delusional about what was happening in these institutions. They were not delusional about what's happening on, in academia. In fact, uh, they were sort of uh, people like you, Lance, have been you know, talking about this for years and, you know, waving the red flag and saying there's something really, really rotten going on here. Why, why was it so difficult to explain this to parents um, until COVID, basically, until the chaos of 2020, basically? What was it that made it so hard to communicate? Well, you know, I think that uh, a lot of it is because um, it was uh, very difficult for uh, us to tell parents what exactly was happening in the classroom. Uh, you could tell parents certain things, like, for example, one of the uh, first studies I wrote for the Pacific Research Institute uh, as education director was to do an analysis of the teacher training curricula mm. in the California State University system. Uh, now, I don't know how it is in other states, but certainly in California, the majority of teachers come through our state university system, our, our teacher colleges, our schools of education. And so uh, I actually went and looked at the books, the required reading material uh, for these prospective teachers to see, well, what exactly were they learning in their schools of education? And what I found is that a lot of the things we're talking about today in this podcast about critical race theory, about this focus on race and racial Marxism, that a lot of that, you know, goes back decades. You know, I wrote this study back around 2000. <laughs> and uh, so this is over 20 years ago. And, you know, the, the, the seeds of what we're seeing in the classroom today were actually being taught in those uh, university classrooms to these prospective teachers. So, you know, you wonder, well, why is it all of a sudden that uh, these teachers uh, seem to be buying this hook, line and sinker, you know, like, you know, uh, you know, because of something that happened maybe yesterday? Well, it's not. That's a that's an illusion, actually, because they have been trained for decades that this was, uh, you know, uh, the predominant viewpoint. And so therefore you see these, uh, so not all by, by any stretch of the imagination, but a, a lot of teachers going into the profession, you know, with this viewpoint, you just take that uh, teacher who uh, I mentioned just a, a while ago that was teaching Joshua and what she said about perfectionism and white supremacy. Well, I guarantee you, she probably learned some of that in her teacher college. And so, you know, I think that, uh, you know, what we're seeing is this long march through the institutions. And that's why I refer to, um, you know, the, the public education system as the education deep state. Uh, and so because it's not just what's happening in the classroom with the teacher or even the, uh, the principal or even the district bureaucracy. It, it's spread throughout uh, this pipeline uh, in public education that goes back to uh, the teacher colleges, oftentimes at state institutions, who are funneling these teachers who have been indoctrinated themselves uh, in uh, uh, this type of propaganda and working their way into the public school system. And so, uh, unfortunately, that's uh, why we're, we see uh, the, the trouble we're having today. And it's uh, kind of boiling to the surface where we see the bubbles, but those bubbles were coming from deep, you know, before they hit the surface. And so uh, I remember when I grew up in Los Angeles, uh, we used to go to the La Brea Tar Pits for it. You know, for those of uh, your audience who ever visit Los Angeles, they probably went to the La Brea Tar Pits to see where the woolly mammoths would sink into the, uh, into the oil. But, you know, even today you see uh, gas bubbles coming out of, out of the tar pits there. And that's, I think, what we see in uh, education, unfortunately, is that uh, those bubbles started off 
way down deep, but they're coming to the surface where parents can actually see them now. And I think because of the COVID, uh, you know, uh, ability to, uh, you know, allow us to see what was being uh, uh, used in the classroom, you had a lot of uh, parents who uh, saw what was happening and then were activated. And I will say, say just one thing is that um, one of those parents who saw what was going on in the classroom because of COVID was actually Gabs Clark, who I mentioned uh, early in the show uh, that she was the uh, African-American low-income mom in Las Vegas. Well, her uh, daughter, her youngest daughter was uh, in an art class uh, doing distance learning, remote learning on the computer. And she was, uh, Gabs was able to look over her shoulder and see that there was, you know, what she thought was a lot of critical race theory uh, inspired lessons being uh you know, used for her daughter's art class, and she came, became very concerned about that. And so, uh, it, and then, you know, of course, she experienced all this that happened with her son being denied the diploma. But initially, her initial concern was because she was able to look over the shoulder of her daughter at that lesson in the art class. And I think that there are lots of Gabs Clarks out there who were seeing that, and they, they became. Uh, very concerned and very angry about that, and which is why you know we are now experiencing this great parent revolt because of that. Parents, you know, they're not going to go out to the school board and pound on the podium uh, just because uh, you know of, of some rumor. You know, they're seeing something. You, you're going to when you have uh, entire uh, auditoriums filled with people saying that you know we don't want this in the class. They've got evidence of that, and I think that a lot of that came through COVID. And that those teacher colleges are particularly terrifying to me because, as you say, Lance, this is something that is uh, rooted very deeply. You know, maybe people only see the tip of the iceberg now, but the roots of all of this are so deep in so many of our institutions. And that brings me to the question I want to ask, which is: um, Is this getting better? Um, is, is this getting sort of substantively measurably better because, you know, you can have all of the Ron DeSantis's in governor's mansions, but when you're still putting student after student through those teachers' colleges, and when you're still educating and conditioning kids in a, in a country where everything is relative, truth is relative, morality is relative, um, and they're inundated with a very unhealthy culture, does the Ron DeSantis, you know, even in 25, 30 states, let's say they all hypothetically have a Ron DeSantis championing these issues there and passing laws that I think at least in Florida are very helpful. If you're still funneling kids through a, a system that's um, broken and corrupted by these malign ideas, um, you can only it seems to me you can only do so much. But in your perspective, Lance, as somebody who follows this so closely, is this going to get better? Is it getting better now? Yeah, I, I, that is an extremely important question, Emily, and it's something that we uh, address in our book. I mean, there are different types of strategies to address what's going on in America's classrooms with critical race theory. You know, yes, there is the Ron DeSantis uh, type of solution, which is a, a kind of a top-down, you know, let's pass a law at the state level. You've seen that uh, happen in a number of different states uh, where they've passed laws basically outlawing critical race theory. But as I mentioned, you know, there uh, is a lot that goes on because of the education deep state. You know, just because you pass a law at the very top 
doesn't necessarily mean that uh, all of a sudden, you know, a magic wand has been waved and all the critical race theory inspired uh, curriculum lessons are all going to disappear. And, uh, and I think one of the things that uh, um, people who are worried about critical race theory need to understand is that critical race theory often goes under other types of names. Mm-hmm. I've kind of alluded to this in my earlier answers, but you will often hear, you know, the, the, the initials DEI diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that seems to be, you know, the mantra that you uh, hear in the public school systems, that they're not implementing DE, uh, they're not implementing uh, CRT, they're implementing DEI. And that's okay. And, you know, and parents initially might be fooled because, well, you know, we support uh, uh, diversity. Uh, Equity kind of sounds like equality, you know, they might not uh, understand the difference between those two terms. And so, uh, you know, the, the left will uh, you know, use those euphemisms in order to uh, implement what uh, the law may say that they can't. And so I think that uh, while it's important to have uh, state level action, uh, such as laws passed by uh, legislatures and governors, uh, I think that you also need to uh, look at the local level. And we profile Ryan Gerdusky, who is uh, the head of 1776 Project PAC, which is a PAC that uh, just um, uh, finances the campaigns of parents and school board candidates who are running on an anti-CRT platform. And so, you know, we all know that most uh, school board races are financed heavily by the teacher unions. They're the ones who have the deep pockets when it comes to school board races. Uh, Well, uh, Ryan Gerdusky's PAC uh, is one way to uh, level the playing field, at least a little bit. And, you know, what we've seen is that he's had a lot of success uh, in the races in which he has entered and that, uh, you know, the majority of the races that uh, he, where he's um, uh, uh, made contributions to candidates have ended up being wins for the anti-CRT candidate. And so I think that uh, what we're seeing is uh, this uh, increase in both the number of pro-parent candidates who are filing for office and those who are winning. Even here in my own home state, deep blue California, you're seeing uh, pro-parent candidates who are winning school board races up and down our state. Uh, And for example, in Southern California, in Riverside County, we had a a school board that uh, flipped to a pro-parent majority. And what was the very first thing they did uh, when they became a majority on the board, uh, they passed an anti-CRT resolution banning CRT in all district schools. So uh, it really does have a real uh, impact. But I think, too, that you know you have to go even more than just parents running for school boards. Uh, because, again, the way that you're really going to um, undercut critical race theory and the left who are pushing it is to give uh, parents as much choice as possible. Uh, because if uh, you know their school, uh, their district, their state is you know ramming this stuff down their throat, they need to have the ability to have an exit ticket out of there. And that's why I think the fact that you see more states now enacting uh, wider uh, and broader school choice laws is really important. Uh, Arizona last year enacted uh, the most expansive education savings account law in the nation, which uh, applies to uh, basically any parent and child in the state that they can use an education savings account to uh, go to a um, alternative private school or uh, some other non-public school. 
And uh, so I think that's a, a, a really important I also think it's important to understand, and I, the, my previous book before The Great Parent Revolt uh, was a book called The Homeschool Boom. Mm. And, uh, you know, I wrote it during the midst of COVID. And we've seen, uh, you know, over the COVID time period, two million students unenrolled from the uh, public schools. And where are they going? Well, some of them went to charter schools, which remained open during COVID. Some of them went to private schools, which again, remained open during COVID. But the vast bulk of them went to homeschooling. And you saw the proportion of families who are homeschooling uh, shoot up. In fact, uh, according to the U.S. Census Bureau data, it, the proportion of uh, families homeschooling in this country doubled during COVID. And it uh, you know increased uh, by uh, fivefold amongst African-American families, for example. And I think that what this shows is that Americans now, especially, again, because of this COVID experience, is that they want a more individualized uh, experience, uh, education experience for their children, that where their needs are addressed, uh, not as part of a class, but their personalized needs are addressed. And I think that's why uh, homeschooling uh, became popular during COVID and has continued to remain popular even after COVID has started to recede from uh, the education scene. And so I think that uh, one, one of the things I say is that ultimately, if you want uh, your child not to be indoctrinated, and you know we have to be uh, honest and say that a lot of private schools are just as bad as the regular public schools. We've seen that in some of the elite uh, New York City and uh, private schools and private schools here in California and other places, which often uh, you know are as bad or even worse when it comes to CRT in the classroom. And so ultimately, for parents to have the total control over their uh, kids' uh, curriculum and their instruction, it's homeschooling. You can't beat homeschooling because you have 100% parental control. And uh, I think that uh, that's, again, one of the reasons uh, besides... Um, you know, um, you know, individualization that uh, parents are now gravitating to homeschooling. And in fact, one of the things I did in my book, The Homeschool Boom, was profile a parent who uh, decided to home here in California, uh, who decided to homeschool their child precisely because of the indoctrination that uh, her son was receiving in his high school. And so the, uh, it was basically persecuting him. And as I mentioned, that's, I think, one of the reasons why parents are so activated now. But uh, that indoctrination was persecuting him. She decided to homeschool, and she said she's never looking back. <laughs> I'm sure there are many such cases around the country. The book is called The Great Parent Revolt, How Parents and Grassroots Leaders Are Fighting Critical Race Theory in America's Schools. Dr. Lance Azumi, thank you so much for joining us. Emily, it's such a great pleasure. Uh, again, I'm a, huge, I'm a huge admirer of the Federalists and all that you do. And so uh, it's been an honor to be on your podcast. You're too kind. Well, I hope folks check out your work over at the Pacific Research Institute Center for Education, where you are, of course, the director. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. We'll be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. Mm -hmm.